0: good morning and welcome again to trinity heights virtual service thanks for joining us again today as we are in part two of a series we started last week which i've called rather bluntly how to grow spiritually so In this series we're looking at what it means to grow spiritually and we're looking at this in the context of the calling and appointing of the first disciples those very famous scenes where the disciples drop their fishing nets they drop everything they're doing they leave their nets and boats and their fathers and their families behind in order to go and follow Jesus we're looking at that moment where Jesus goes up on the mountaintop by himself And then eventually, he gathers his disciples around him, and he appoints 12 to be his 12 disciples. What can we learn from these very early moments about spiritual growth? We might think that Jesus hasn't really taught them anything yet. Surely, we we have to let the three years unfold, hear the Sermon on the Mount, listen to the parables, watch the miracles. Then we can find out what Jesus thought about spiritual growth. But I'm claiming that actually, even in these first very brief encounters with Jesus, that the way in which Jesus calls and then appoints the 12 to be with him already provides insight into the way that Jesus viewed spiritual growth. So, how do we grow spiritually? If you read the Bible, and it doesn't matter whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, you will see that spiritual growth and spiritual maturity are tied to the acquisition of knowledge. Let me give you a smattering of verses which make this connection clear. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And Paul prays that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, that's actually just a very small fraction of the number of times that knowledge is mentioned in this sort of all-important way. But even from this brief section of verses about knowledge, we discover that knowledge is connected with wisdom and understanding. Knowledge is a way of avoiding foolishness and stupidity and even avoiding our own destruction. We discover that God desires knowledge for his people. And so we find Paul prays in various places for the churches to be filled with knowledge. So obviously, acquiring knowledge is a significant part of spiritual growth. I about you, but I've often thought of knowledge in terms of gaining information and better still if I this information can be sort of downloaded into me with this, with as much cool sort of detached objectivity as possible all the better. Perhaps I get this information in a classroom, or perhaps it's information I find in a book. And then I can transfer the information into my own notes, put it down on paper, distill it, put it into a complete list with with bullet points, organized and schematized. So what I did when I first became a Christian is I went out and I bought a bunch of books written by Christian authors. And I read and I read. And I devoured those books. And I, I always remember one friend who was an atheist and he, he came over one day and he saw the number of Christian books or books written by Christians that I'd accumulated on my shelf. And he just stared for a while, dumbfounded. And then he said, oh, you've gone crazy. But for me, this was just further confirmation. He didn't care about spiritual growth, but this was how I was going to grow spiritually. But then Jesus says something when he calls his disciples, which really should interrupt my my whole approach to acquiring knowledge. And and not really just my approach, is it? But the, the sort of typical Western approach to knowledge acquisition, because it says this. It says Jesus called his disciples saying, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Early Jewish writings describe the relationship between a rabbi and his disciples like this. The disciple must cover himself in the dust of the rabbi's feet. In other words, the disciple would follow the rabbi so closely that they would literally be walking in the dust of his feet. So if you spend a day following the rabbi on these hot, dusty roads, then at the end of the day, whatever your rabbi has been walking in that dust, that dirt that has been kicked up, it's all over you. You're caked in it. And so the saying developed, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Of course, this literal experience of following that closely behind your rabbi is a metaphor for knowledge and spiritual growth. It's a much more holistic approach to knowledge. It says you are going to watch your rabbi's every move. You might pick up some of his mannerisms. You'll imitate his posture and perhaps his way of walking. You might even have some of his intonation in the way that you talk at times. It sort of just happens by osmosis. But it won't stop there. It won't just be cheap imitation. It will go well beyond that. You'll get to know his pattern of thinking. You'll become familiar with his framing of life and events, so that you see what he sees and you'll hear what he hears, so that you'll not only do what he does, but you'll know exactly why he does what he does. You'll learn to treat people the way he treats people. You'll learn to love what he loves. You'll come to value what he values. In other words, you will internalize a whole entire way of being. So that when Jesus says, come, follow me, he's saying, come, internalize for yourselves my entire way of being and moving in this world. Come and embody my existence in this world. You know, we saw last week that children aged 5 to 11 in the Betsefer, Affair, that is the house of the book, Uh, a part of the first stage of education, formal education, well, they attempted to memorize the entire Torah. Do you remember that? And the children aged 12 to 14 in Bet Talmud, which is known as the house of learning, they attempted to learn the commentaries on the Torah. They tried to memorize that. But, But it's interesting that the more bookish type of learning, the memorization by rote, the download of information was heavily weighted in the early stages of education. In other words, that was for the children. But after the Bet Sefer, when they memorized the Torah, and after Bet Talmud, when they learned the commentaries, then came Bet Midrash, and that is a stage in education, that moment when the rabbi says, come, follow me. So knowledge is still tied to spiritual growth, But it's not the modern Western approach to knowledge that attempts to condense the sort of the vastness of life and reality into factoids and information we can get out of a book. I like what Nietzsche has to say about this bookish approach to knowledge. He says, I have slammed the door on the scholars, those blind guides. I have moved from the house of the scholars and I've even banged the door behind me. I'm not like them, trained to pursue knowledge as if it were nutcracking, a world of truth that can be mastered completely and forever with the aid of our square little reason. What, do we really want to permit existence to be degraded for us like this, reduced to a mere exercise for a calculator and an indoor diversion for mathematicians. Above all, one should not wish to divest existence of its rich ambiguity. That is a dictate of good taste. Knowledge is tied up with spiritual growth, but Jesus does not think that knowledge is like As Nietzsche puts it, nutcracking. He doesn't think it's about mastering a body of information with our square little reason. Something to be worked out on a calculator, an indoor diversion. Jesus won't allow existence to be degraded like this. And so in the great outdoors, Jesus says, come, follow me. And where do we follow Jesus? It says he went up the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, and to be sent out to proclaim the message, and to have authority to cast out demons. So he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonneges, that is, sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. There's quite a bit to look at in this passage, and we'll actually unpack different aspects of this next week. But this week, I just want to observe the fact that when Jesus calls disciples to follow him, he is simultaneously calling them into community with each other. In other words, if we follow Jesus, we will find ourselves in the midst of a community and, and not a community of our choosing. And this is so, I think really vitally important to remember, not a community of our choosing, but of his. Jesus chooses his 12 disciples. Jesus extends the invitation to, to follow him the other disciples didn't get to to vote people in or out. They they just found themselves with other people who had answered his call to follow him. There's something really important about the fact that God is the architect of the community we belong to. Because as we know, Jesus calls people to be together who, who would never really have chosen to be together Some of those disciples would have never chosen each other in a million years. They they would have been contemptuous of each other. We've talked about this before, but it had to be that way. It couldn't be a nice comfortable group chosen by Matthew or chosen by Simon or chosen by me or chosen by you. That would actually defeat the purpose and stunt their spiritual or our spiritual growth because this community, which is not of our making, is where we acquire the knowledge we need for spiritual growth. This sort of knowledge is, is not the sort of solo endeavor of an individual, something we acquire off on our own, someplace, but something we acquire together by being together. And not just together in a group of our own making, of our own choosing, where you and I are the architects, but rather a group of Jesus' own choosing. It could be that right now you feel so beaten up, and so tired, so guilty, and so broke. You think, I haven't got any love left in me. I can't forgive, and I don't have any more to give. Well, it could be that you need to be on the receiving end of love. You need to experience forgiveness and to receive someone else's generosity. And so Jesus invites you into community where there's the possibility to experience those things which can ignite your spiritual growth. Then again, it could be that we're simply out of practice. Love, forgiveness, and generosity are things we need to practice and so again, Jesus invites you and he invites me into community where we can love and forgive and give from the bottom of our hearts. The truth is we need both and usually at the same time. How do we grow spiritually? We grow in knowledge but not knowledge gained from a book or from my own somewhere, but knowledge gained by following Jesus into community, not of our choosing, but of Christ's choosing. And as we saw last week, it's a community where everyone, including those who don't make the cut are invited. I'll end with this. Not long ago, a friend asked me, what's the secret of getting on with some of the really difficult people in our lives? What's the most important thing? I thought for a moment, and I said, well, I think that first of all, we have to let people just be themselves, not want to control their point of view, just just love them as they are, where they are. It was about a year later, I found myself having a really difficult conversation with someone. And lo and behold, right after that difficult conversation, like a minute afterwards, this same friend calls me. Well, I tell them about the difficult conversation and this friend in a gently mocking way, quotes me right back to me. It was a great moment where a friend could sort of hold up a mirror for me and I could laugh at myself and learn to love all over again. This is one of the things I love about our community group even in this sort of virtual context through the faithful meeting online I personally experience what it's like to be with loving forgiving and generous people who on the one hand create a space for me to come as myself as I am and yet at the same time they challenge me to grow I'm grateful for the church. I'm grateful for our church, which encourages me to follow Jesus more closely so that I can see what he sees and hear what he hears and learn to love what he loves and get covered in his dust. Amen.